Hello once again and welcome to the newest episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Matt. I'm Alex. I'm Vera. I'm Crystal. I'm Sylvia and I'm here with little Jack who's three and a half weeks old. So you can ignore the extra noises that are going to be in this edition. In this episode of the Harry Potter Book Club, we'll be exploring together chapters four and five of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. But before we jump into our discussion, let me remind you that you can access our blog for the latest updates about the Harry Potter Book Club. And you can also contact us with questions or comments at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. That's hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. Well, Harry Potter Book Club, it's been a while since we last got together. But we are picking up with Chapter 4 of Sorcerer's Stone, The Keeper of the Keys. And so we begin, boom, They knocked again, Dudley jerked awake. And we're introduced to, who at least for Harry, is a brand new character. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just, I was wondering why exactly they even called this the Keeper of the Keys. That was something, I don't know if anyone had that, that same question. But, you know, like, a gameskeeper, I kind of understand, you know, exactly what they do. Keeper of the Keys, and when you, when you... See Hagrid throughout the story. Um, you know what does that mean, and why do they call this chapter? Obviously, we meet Hagrid. I mean, perhaps that's why. But is there some deeper symbolic uh, meaning of why he is the keeper of the keys, or am I just trying to flesh it out way too much? You know, I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned that, but. I'm wondering if she used that because it's not only one of his job descriptions at Hogwarts that introduces us a little bit about him, but he is actually the keeper of the keys to the vaults that we're going to see in Gringotts. So that gives us a little bit of insight into where we're going later and how Hagrid is kind of in Dumbledore's confidence and he has this tie to Harry's past. Yeah. Also, the keeper of the keys to the magical kingdom. He's like opening right. up his mind to that. But I, again, yeah. I hadn't thought about that until you just said that. Yeah. We've got all kinds of ideas, though, man. That's what we're just yeah. well, And what? simply at a literary level, keeper of the keys yeah, is so much more like dramatic than the gamekeeper. Right. <laughs> Do we see in any of the later books or later in this one Hagrid actively using the keys at, Har- at Hogwarts? Because that was one thing that struck me in thinking about that title. I, I don't actually ever recall ha- Hagrid using keys at Hogwarts. Yeah, it feels like really. a much more yeah. filch type job. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's one reason why, I, I mean, reading the rest of the series, I'm, I never really think of Hagrid using the keys. So that's why I was thinking maybe she's trying to use it as some type of symbolic reference here, mm. or perhaps she just thought it was, you know, it was some some way to introduce him, and then she just kind of left it there um, here in Chapter 4. I wasn't sure. I think that's a really interesting question. And even when you started, I was like, where is this going? But <laughs> in like three and a half minutes, we've, we've found like three levels of meaning. Like mm-hmm. job description, Gringotts Vault, but also op- like literally unlocking a new world for Harry. And so I, I think you're actually on to something. So what are your thoughts as we are introduced to 
Hagrid, uh, for us the second time, but really in, in earnest for the first time. We get details here uh, that we never got before. We see him interacting with the Dursley family in, frankly, some really hilarious ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's interesting, and maybe just because I, I've seen the movie so many times now, sometimes that's what jumps into my head, um, the way he interacts with them in the movie. He, at first, he mistakes Dudley for Harry. But in the book, like, there's no way that's happening. He knows about the Dursleys. He knows what they're about. He's rude to them right from the offset. Like, he's almost been instructed by Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. You know, these are terrible people. Get Harry away from them. Um, and knows exactly who Harry is. Because he looks like his father. And mm-hmm. Hagrid knew his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and he, yeah, one of the first things we, we hear from Hagrid is, budge up, you great lump. Right. And so we immediately we... start liking Hagrid. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. He's, he starts out as this really daunting, scary figure in a really dramatic scene at mm-hmm. the end of chapter three. And as soon as he opens his mouth, we're like... Ah, he's saying the things to the Dursleys. We wish we could say right. he's on our side. Yeah, I, and I think he's also, I think, he's the first character that says to Harry, you look just like your dad, but you have your mother's eyes, which Harry's going to hear over and over and over yeah. and over again in the Wizarding World. But Hagrid's the first one that says it to him. Yeah. But of, of course for us, that detail means very little at, at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, if we are reading through uh, the narrative for the first time, that's that's literally something we don't start taking note of until it's said multiple times right. throughout the books. And even then, we're like, okay, it's it's just, you know, it's a physical description mm-hmm. that, yeah. that keeps emerging. We don't realize the sort of uh, emotive significance that yeah. that's going to end up having for all of us. Um, by the end of it all. And actually with that line, I mean, it, we know that it is an important line and at reading the series, you know, and now rereading them again, um, I just, I, I thought of this when I read that line, I thought, I mean, perhaps Harry sees the world through his mother's eyes, I, I, you know, and he's, he's kind hearted, but he looks more like his father. And we know that, you know, his father, later on in the story, we hear about how he was just, uh, he had a, a, a misfit or a gang of misfits and Harry will too. So it just kind of plays into that, that same theme. And like when I read that, that's immediately what I thought was like he has, he's seeing the, the world through his mother's eyes, so kind hearted, but he's actually going to be a misfit. And that's going to be one of the things that we love about Harry. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because of course we know that Snape reacts to Harry on the basis of the connection between Harry and James. Yeah. Um, even though, the, the you know, having Lily's eyes uh, is an important thing to Snape as well. But Harry will be really upset mm-hmm. when he learns more about who his father mm-hmm. actually was in terms of character and behavior. Uh, yeah. At least as a teenager. Yeah. 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 Well, I think... I think Hagrid, at least for me, he just immediately gives this feeling of, like, safety. And he probably wouldn't give off that immediate... I mean, you wouldn't think that about him at first if we hadn't seen him already in the first chapter where he not only, like, rescues Harry from the destruction where his parents were murdered, but then we know that Dumbledore trusts him immediately, which we've we haven't really met Dumbledore, but we have met him, but we haven't been introduced to his character. So we, But we know that he's this authority that... Um, trusts Hagrid so we immediately recognize him as safety too and even like little 
a line here that says like the noise of the storm outside dropped a little when Hagrid came in and it was just like mm. everything sort of dropped a little when Hagrid came in. He crinkles his eyes at Harry and smiles. I'm like, Harry doesn't ever see anybody really smile at him. So you're just immediately endeared toward Hagrid because he's, he's treating Harry the way we want Harry to be treated for the first time in the entire book. And it's so sweet to see. And he also gives Harry presumably his first birthday cake ever. Um, yeah. Which is really neat. Which was not misspelled in the yeah. book. Right. It is like famously <laughs> always misspelled now because of the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, that makes me wonder about the film's depiction of mm -hmm. Hagrid a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, and the sense that because he is large and half giant. And maybe didn't complete his education. And didn't, yeah, okay. that he can't spell happy birthday, Harry. Right. He got to year three at right. Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's a professor eventually yeah. at this institution of witchcraft and wizardry. Mm -hmm. Clearly he can spell happy birthday. Like, right. I, think, I think the movie plays into perhaps a stereotype of you know the 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 big dumb oaf mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that isn't fair to the way right. Rowling's actually Portrayed. written this yeah. character. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember when I read this the first time, the character that I thought of when he was filling up this space and he's big was the Ghost of Christmas Present from the Muppets. Mm. You know, he's <laughs> he's immediately giving this gift and he's so kind, but at the same time, like you know, he also can you know, be vindictive, you know, and just like Ghost Prince Present, when he went by some of those houses, he got Ebenezer to you know, sort of stuck the knife in the first time and say, hey, look at what you did. Um, you know, similar in that same way, uh, pointing out the problems with the Dursleys. And that seems to be the, the flip side of the coin of what Crystal was talking about with the security and safety. Mm. Like, Hagrid has the power mm -hmm. to be safe for Harry, but with that power also comes the, the capacity to intimidate, to lash out in really destructive ways. And, and we, we will see later on, Hagrid is capable of utilizing that power in some less than safe ways. Yeah. It's interesting... Um, the Hagrid that we meet here, like, because he's the first magical character that Harry comes into contact with that he knows about, um, he seems, like, so powerful and, um, like, it's just interesting to compare who he is here to when, in the next chapter, when, like, Malfoy's making comments about him, and mm. it's sort of like you realize he's actually kind of an outsider in the magical world, and yet to yeah. us, he will always be an insider because he's the one who introduced Harry to the magical world, mm. yeah. and we don't yet know that he's still sort of an outsider. So I just think it's interesting because this view of Hagrid is going to be like it kind of our view of Hagrid changes as we learn more about him in later chapters. I think that becomes a really effective uh, narrative device that Rowling employs throughout the books in that she introduces us to characters and makes us love them before we understand that they're actually not beloved in their own society. Mm-hmm. And I think that that becomes a, a powerful mm. instrument for Rowling to uh, deconstruct and try to tear down uh, the sort of thinking and social structures that the magical community is built on. Now, we are predisposed because of the way she's introduced us to these um, compassion-inducing characters. We're predisposed 
to seeing them in a particular light that doesn't jive with what the wizarding world would say about them. Yeah, now that you say that, I'm thinking yeah, also like, like, like Lupin, Ron, Lupin, Tonks, the Weasley, yeah, the Weasley, yeah. all the Weasleys, yeah. Hermione, Herm- Dobby. Yep. Dobby, yeah. 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 Although I wouldn't say She's Dobby's introduction is endearing, it annoyed me. How could they? <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Anyway, Agreed. But yeah. <laughs> and this also sort of parallels um, one of the chapters ending with Harry saying, you know, that he always dreamed some unknown relation would come and like tell him this other life that existed mm-hmm. for him and like this is Hagrid who I just sort of picture it's like some goofy uncle and I know I'm using that kind of goofy there in maybe a negative way since we were just talking about he's clearly like a smart guy he handles a lot of things and he's sort of got street smarts um but he he is that to me like what I think of him as like Harry's great uncle who just sort of leads and guides him and you know, gives him advice and takes him away and so he's he's getting that sort of wish fulfilled I guess mm-hmm. One thing that I really like about Hagrid's approach to this situation, so he shows up, he insults the Dursleys, awesome. He reminds Harry that, well, he lets Harry know that he knows him, he knew his parents, he knew him when he was a baby. So there's that safety and that like mystery of the past. He does magic, he makes a fire, and then he starts to make like tea and food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like, let's not get down to business yet. Let me fill you full of tea and sausages. And then, like, then we'll, you know, talk about what I'm here for. Well, even then, I mean, we still we know kind of there's something magic going on, but it's still Harry doesn't know he's a wizard yet. We haven't gotten to the famous line of, I right. know what, you know, I mean, yeah. you're a wizard, Harry. You know, we haven't gotten to that yet. So there's something going on. and. And we start peeling back, I guess, layers, you know, kind of like an onion or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. We're starting to peel back these layers of everything that the Dursleys have told Harry has been false, about his past has been false, um, including his parents' death. I mean, who he actually is and what he is um, is actually false. And we, we keep peeling these things back as the conversation un- unravels. Hagrid, this is something Trevor said when we were talking about this chapter over a month ago. But um, he, Hagrid's like kind of the anti-Dursley because the first thing he does is feed Harry and like prepare mm-hmm. food. When what have we seen? Harry's the one preparing the food for them and not getting any. So it's like there is something so cozy and hospitable about making a meal, warmth. You know, it's it's really nice. Yeah, and Hagrid as really the anti-Vernon, I think, comes out uh, quite a bit as the layers of these questions starts uh, Mm -hmm. peeling back. Uh, Vernon is demanding that Hagrid stop introducing all of this new information. Really, Vernon sets himself up as a barrier, as an obstacle to Harry receiving answers to the most profound existential questions that anyone could have. I mean, on page 50 alone, um, we've got Hagrid telling Harry about your world, my world, your parents' world. Uh, Hagrid talking to him about his mom and his dad, and then Hagrid starting to introduce to Harry that he is a wizard. And and I, I found it interesting to just think through, what are the questions behind those answers? They're the three most basic questions we could ever ask. Where am I? For Harry, it's, it's a world enchanted with magic. From where do I come? What, what's my history? Uh, and And... For Harry, he's got no information about his mom and his dad that's, that's actually true. And then ultimately the question, 
Who am I? What am I? Harry doesn't even know that. And Vernon sets himself up as uh, an obstacle to Harry receiving any of that information. So we get this idea that Harry is he's, he's totally lost. Uh, he's, he's totally uh, ungrounded in reality as we know his reality. Well, I think this is also um, Vernon, I guess, in the Dursleys' last chance for normalcy. I know in previous chapters we've talked about mm-hmm. their, their normalcy, but it, he, he knows that this is it. You know, the cat is getting ready to be let out of the bag right here, and he's got to stop it. And that's the only reason why I can think someone as uncourageous as Vernon would step up to the giant, as Hagrid's called in this chapter. You know, he stands up to him or tries to stop him at least two or three times um, and always cowers back, you know, after Hagrid looks at him or, or, or shouts an insult or something like that back at him. Um, but, yeah, this, this is it. This is their last chance at normalcy. And um, they know that Harry's about to be let in on a secret that's going to change all of their lives. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I love all of Uncle Vernon's reactions. Like, I feel yeah. like I could just read through this chapter and read, you know, Uncle Vernon made a funny rasping noise. Uncle Vernon made a sound that sounded like a mouse being trodden on. <laughs> and then, like, uh, Uncle Vernon, who had gone very pale, whispered something that sounded like mimblewimble. <laughs> like, it's just, it's fabulous. Little, like, shots of, of, you know, this terrifying figure in Harry's life that's totally flabbergasted and terrified of this giant that comes in to rescue Harry. And it's just like, I, I wish I could see it through Harry's eyes. You know, it must be amazing. He's never, ever seen uncle Vernon scared. There's never Mm. been any, you know, he's the terrifying figure. Mm -hmm. And so this is somebody that's making uncle Vernon scared. Like this is awesome. (laughs) Getting into that interaction between Hagrid and Vernon, we have Vernon saying, he's not going. Hagrid grunted. I'd like to see a muggle like you stop him, he said. A what? said Harry, interested. A muggle, said Hagrid. It's what we call non-magic folk like them. And it's your bad luck you grew up in a family of the biggest muggles I ever laid eyes on. Something that I'm curious about that's brought up uh, and, and really introduced sort of head on here. Um, is the terminology that's used for non-magic folk, this language of muggle. And I'm, I'm curious, in your understanding, in your reading, does muggle have negative associations for Hagrid? Yes. And it even seems to have a degree, which I thought was weird, because mm-hmm. later on it's just a category. You are a muggle, or you may be muggle-born, but not, you know... but. Here he's like the biggest muggles, as though there may be other people that are less of a muggle, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Well, I, I'm so glad. I, I think for Hagrid, though, you can almost see it as a defense mechanism, because everywhere Hagrid goes, he's stared at. When they go on the underground, he's stared at. People you know, in the movies, they even portray him going like, what are you looking at? Because <laughs> people stare at him or gawk at him, and... 
So he probably hasn't had too many positive experiences with muggles. And now this kid who we know Hagrid actually already loves because um, he rescued him from the house and he tried to give him that scratchy goodbye kiss. We know he loves Harry. And so to see more muggles who he probably already has a negative idea of because of the way they've treated him, now he sees them hurting somebody he loves. So he probably has a biased opinion of muggles, whereas we see plenty of interactions with muggles from like Dumbledore, Hermione, even the Weasleys where... They protect them. They don't have a negative connotation that's associated with mobile. So I, it could be just a byproduct of the way he's been treated, even. Yeah, I, I think this specific term for non-magic folk raises interesting questions about the development and use of language in a society over time that refers to someone who is other. Yeah. Um, and... And part of it is, is like you were saying, for some people, like Hermione, muggle is a purely descriptive term. For other people, like Malfoy, muggle is... Like a slur. It, it, it is. It's a, it's a pejorative name to be uh, leveled against someone. And uh, even just structurally looking at the word, uh, you have a six-letter word with two G's occupying mm -hmm. the central positions. Yeah. I mean, the, the structural similarities between muggle and what is for our culture the most uh, offensive racial uh, name, the N-word, yeah. the, they're, they're so structurally similar, it, it makes mm. me wonder if uh, Rowling is actually playing off the sounds of uh, racially charged language for the other in our world uh, and and sort of introducing it here so that we can sort of explore the way that a term can can be can be used. That's really interesting. Now that you bring that up, that also reminds there's a a third word that's uh, a slur for people who are homosexual that would also work for that with that same description with the two mm -hmm. G's in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, that I think you're right. Maybe there's something with the the double G in the middle, that it's a hard sound. It's a it's a hard yeah. That that is a it's just something in English mm -hmm. we associate with the rotten and the foul. Hmm. Interesting. But of course he does say you know, and we find out um, that. You know, Lily came from Muggles, and he say, I mean, we hear that, uh, you know, some of the best witches and wizards um, have come from Muggles. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it, it, I guess Rowling is, uh, or does put that in there, um, just to make sure that it's not all a negative connotation, you know, to be from Muggles or Muggleborns. Yeah, yeah and, and to that point, I think, I think that that goes to this idea that Muggle in wizarding society is sort of an ambiguous term. Mm. It doesn't have a set value, like uh, the clearly set negative value uh, statements that you know are in racially charged or sexually charged epithets in, in our language. We're watching a term take on new meanings over the course of these seven books. Or perhaps, you know, when it comes to, to dark wizards, have an old meaning recovered and thrust back onto language but i just i i think it will be fascinating for us to 
look at, uh, through the course of these books, the use of other language and its development and how it actually comes across differently in the mouths of different people who are bringing different evaluations and worldviews to the table. So in contrast to Muggle, we see um, when later on um, Harry turns the t- turns to ask his adoptive parents about you know whether they what they knew about the situation. Petunia says, "Well, of course we knew," and describes him immediately as a freak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Really. and that becomes, I think, the term that's used most often mm-hmm. for their description of magical people. Yeah, yeah, and it shows that the antipathy toward the person that is other is totally mutual. Mm-hmm. It goes both ways. Um, and I think it's it's easier for us in the moment to sympathize with the wizarding community um, b- because, you know, we've already grown to dislike the Dursleys and everything that they're predisposed toward. But we're going to see very quickly uh, that the antipathy of the wizarding community towards muggles is even stronger in some cases, more destructive, more dangerous. Um, But also Aunt Petunia is talking out, I I think, of of envy um, even. I mean, she calls her mother, or sorry, she calls Harry's mother a freak, but I mean, you see that she says, but for mother and father, oh no, it was Lily this and Lily that. They were proud of having a witch in the family. And you can, she even says that she's ranting, you know, she's been wanting to say all this for years. Um, so you can definitely see that maybe there was some jealousy that has just been festering. And, and even seeing Harry has brought up, you know, and having to raise Harry, knowing what he is and knowing what he will become or what he might become, uh, just, I think, is, has eaten away at her. Um, and knowing what she wanted to be, because of course we find out in book seven that she actually wrote to Dumbledore mm-hmm. when Lily was accepted to Hogwarts and wanted to go too. And she was—it is—it's absolute jealousy, and you know that jealousy that she couldn't be part of this world turned to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. We do see that she's just been kind of festering on all this jealousy that's turned into anger, and um, now it's just spilling out onto Harry, who is getting what she wanted when she was his age. Yeah. Not much later, that anger is described as uh, prescribed, violence is prescribed afterwards, right? Um, Vernon, when he is describing Harry's condition, uh, um, he says it's nothing that a good beating couldn't mm-hmm. have faced. <laughs> um, surprising, I think, of a conclusion given the number of beatings he's given Harry and mm-hmm. the failure to uh, have that function. Um, however, I guess that's the nature of stupidity, continuing to try to do the same thing again and again and expect different results. I, I think that plays into the Hagrid-Vernon contrast as well. In, in that paragraph uh, that you described, we've got um, Vernon, probably nothing a good beating wouldn't have cured. Vernon is a re-traumatizer of Harry. Whereas Hagrid enters the scene as a healer. 
Uh, Vernon says of Harry's parents, the world's better off without him, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. He, he dismisses the grief and pain that has defined Harry's life, whereas Hagrid comes on the scene as a sympathizer. Uh, and uh, Vernon blames. Asked for all they got getting mixed up with these wizarding types. Uh, he, he, he blames uh, James and Lily for the fate that they ended up receiving, whereas Hagrid, rather than blaming becomes the source of comfort, security, a safe place, a safe person with whom to grieve. I think that, um, really, it's, it's all one extended sentence with a lot of commas and dashes, but it really sets up Vernon to be a foil of, of Hagrid, and a, a really destructive foil at that. Again, I think the cartoonishness of the sort of larger-than-life descriptions of of uh, the Dursleys, especially early on in book one, make it easy to dismiss the fact that this is profoundly destructive behavior. These sorts of relationships um, have, have hugely damaging effects on, on children and on others in their lives. I would go even further to say I think we learn that Hagrid not only comforts, but he becomes a um, advocate for justice. You know, he works with Harry in later books to, as part of the Order of Phoenix, to help right the wrongs and defeat Voldemort and, in a way, avenge the deaths of Harry's parents. Whereas Vernon has made it clear from the start, it's their fault. They're better off dead. I think it's interesting that um, on that same page uh, with with Vernon's uh, incredibly revealing rant, uh, we have Harry remembering for the first time something else. A high, cold, cruel laugh. Mm -hmm. Um, And... It just strikes me as interesting um, that it's as Hagrid enters Harry's life that he's able to recall um, this most traumatic of memories for the first time. I think there's something to the idea that Hagrid provides the safety that is absolutely necessary in order for Harry to begin confronting what has what has happened with him. Um, and, and Hagrid is really the first person who has a relationship with Harry that isn't totally suffused with lies. I mean, every other relationship that, that Harry has known since his first birthday, really, uh, has been predicated on falsehoods. But now he has an advocate, um, someone who's on his side, and we find that um, the, the trauma can begin to be revisited. Of course, that brings up some interesting points about how Hagrid starts narrating the events that he knows. Uh, because the, the events of, uh, what is it, 11, 10 years ago, um, are narrated from Hagrid's point of view, Rowling is able to hide certain details or distort certain details so that we think we're learning like the truth about that fateful night when in actuality we're in for a lot of surprises mm-hmm. because 
Hagrid doesn't know everything, and he doesn't even know some of the things he thinks he knows, which is going to make it really interesting for us readers. Right. Uh, one thing I kind of wanted to get your guys' opinion on was I noticed something reading throughout this chapter. There's uh, interesting use of the color green in here. Um, Harry's birthday, or it says, Happy Birthday, Harry, the cake that is given to him that lettering is in green and then the letter that is eventually given to him by Hagrid it's written his name and address is in emerald green and then he remembers uh the you know the night his parents died it's in green um I was wondering if yeah I was wondering if you guys thought of anything about that and not only that we find out you know Slytherin is the house of green but there's also once I started thinking about that, I noticed in Diagon Alley that there's use of red and gold, which is Gryffindor, mm-hmm. um, and it's used a couple of times, or, or scarlet and gold, rather, uh, too. I mean, both both are used in Diagon Alley, so I, I thought maybe she was digging a little bit deeper. I, perhaps it, it could be nothing, but maybe she was digging deep into something there, um, as I do know that I mean, Harry will struggle with, uh, you know, am I am I too much like Voldemort in in uh, future books? Um, and I mean, we'll, we'll see that you know, like it that he he's a I guess a Gryffindor at heart, which is represented from from gold and uh, scarlet or gold and red. And and again, maybe I'm stretching there, but I mean, I just saw that that was I picked up green in that chapter, and I saw it over and over again. So I was just wondering what your guys' thoughts on that. That is interesting. It may it may be nothing. May may amount to nothing. But, but it is a lot of repetition of one color. That's yeah. interesting. Maybe I it's mean, your like, favorite color. We know yeah, I mean <laughs> I mean we know that McGonagall's kind of signature color is that emerald green, which mm-hmm. she wears it a lot and she always writes with that emerald green ink. And we know that hmm. the color flash of the Avada Kedavra curse is green. Mm-hmm. But the green icing, I don't have a place for. Well, yeah. who made the cake? Hagrid. Hagrid did. He made the cake himself? He made the, he made the, cake. the cake. Okay. And Harry's eyes are green. Harry's eyes are green. His mother's eyes are green. So, good thing his Which... cakes are better than his tea biscuits or whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's a notoriously <laughs> terrible baker, so... Maybe that's maybe that's a, a foreshadowing of that. Like he picked green icing. Like why would you choose mm-hmm. that color? Yeah. And he did know his eyes were green. Yeah. So I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't it, really have an explanation yeah, for that. Yeah, it may be nothing, but I just noticed that. And I'm interested to trace that through the books as we right. go to see if green pops up anywhere. That's maybe the icing was just sort of a random thing, but the rest of it maybe mm-hmm. has some sort of symbolism because I do think it's important that he picked up those colors. Well, his name is written in green in the, the birthday cake and then again his name and address have been written in green in uh, the letters given to him. So it's, it's just interesting. That curse had his name on it but he didn't die. Is the yeah. prophecy green? <laughs> in the movies, yeah, it's, it's, in the movies it's blue. I, yeah. I can't remember exactly the, the, the color. Um, it is, I think it's just like a swirling like a liquid silvery. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I, I do. He I did notice the scarlet bit. and gold reference, though. I mean, that was definitely yeah. intentional yes. later. And you'll, yeah, we'll see, especially from his wand, you know, the yeah. showers of red and gold. I mean, like, it, it, so it was interesting just to see and pick up some of that. But. Yeah. 
Well, one thing I really um, stuck out to me in this section where um, Hagrid is is explaining, you know, this terrible, tragic history of Harry's parents and, and Voldemort and, and everything that went on back in the day, is that when he starts out, he says, I don't know if I'm the right person to tell you. But then as he goes on, it's a very gentle but honest explanation of what Hagrid knows. He's not leaving anything out to spare Harry, but at the same time, he's not just being like, well, this guy came and he killed your parents and it was terrible. You know, he's, he's very carefully explaining to this young boy. And, um, and he, he's also, you know, we get these little flashes of humor throughout where there's one, there's one little section. Hagrid suddenly pulled out a very dirty spotted handkerchief and blew his nose with a sound like a foghorn. Mm -hmm. And so even though the story is serious and tragic and we know it's like breaking Harry's heart to hear it there's these little moments because it's Hagrid that kind of alleviate that heaviness yeah. he's the perfect person mm -hmm. to tell Harry yeah, this really is. and you know it's it's just so I think it's just so well done because if it like if McGonagall had come and told Harry about his parents it would have been a totally different mm -hmm. telling or even Dumbledore. Yeah, or even Dumbledore. Maybe marred by how much he knows about it, whereas you're right with Hagrid. He's so kind-hearted and sympathetic that he is sort of the perfect person because he can cry with Harry, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. Whereas Dumbledore would have probably been so, like, real, I guess, about it that it would have been almost academic in the way he told Harry. Yeah. And McGonagall would probably have just been kind of sharp. Um, not mm -hmm. intentionally so, because, of course, we all love McGonagall, but yeah. probably would have come across a little differently. So I think that's really astute. Of course, the, the details aren't quite right. Right, right. <laughs> uh, your mom and dad and nicer people you couldn't find. Well, of course, Snape would, would beg to differ, <laughs> at least as regards James. Uh, uh, Hagrid uh, says it, it's kind of a mystery as to why uh, Voldemort went after Harry after killing James and Lily. I guess he wanted to make a clean job of it. You know, just clean up all the loose ends. Of course, we know that Harry was the real target. Right. Of course, that won't be truly revealed until book five, right? right? Yeah. Um, and then he says uh, that there was something going on that night that Voldemort hadn't counted on. That something about Harry stumped Voldemort. And he says, I don't know what it was. No one does. Except Dumbledore. Dumbledore. But Dumbledore is characteristic Dumbledore fashion, playing cards close to the best, and he will reveal what he knows in good time. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it's, I, I again think, it's a fascinating way for Rowling to tell the story through the perspective of uh, someone we don't know is an unreliable narrator. But it's unreliable because of the natural limits on his knowledge, not because he's being deceptive. But that that allows us to sort of scratch the itch of getting some history for Harry, while at the same time having all of these surprises uh, awaiting us that are just going to blow our minds uh, later on in the in the story. One thing Hagrid gets right is what has happened to, to Voldemort, right? Because there's all these theories, you know. Some say he died, mm. and, and some say that he's still out there biding his time. Um most of us reckon he's still out there somewhere but lost his powers, too weak to carry on. 
And so I'm wondering how much that's Hagrid's opinion as much as it is probably Dumbledore's opinion. Yeah. I, I, have to, I have to imagine that Hagrid came to Dumbledore and said, do you think he's really dead? Yeah. And Dumbledore probably didn't say, like, no, he's not. He probably gave a really vague answer mm-hmm. or something like that. I can only imagine, you know, in Dumbledore fashion, that happening. And then Hagrid thinking, oh, well, he must really be out there, you know. Yeah. So I, I feel like you're right. I mean, hinting at that, that has to probably be Dumbledore's pushing Right. That, I mean, he's Dumbledore's man. He's he's in Dumbledore's camp. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I mean, that's the one thing that throws, I guess, Hagrid over the edge is when um, Vernon, Dumbledore's threatened. Yeah, yeah. Vernon uh, calls Dumbledore a crackpot old fool. Yeah, it gets all caps real quick after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're, you're right. Hagrid does have some of the details remarkably right. Mm-hmm. Some say he died. Codswallop, in my opinion... Don't know if he had enough human left in him to die. Mm-hmm. And we, in yeah. fact, know that that's actually really close to the, right. to the truth. He didn't have enough soul left in him uh-huh. mm-hmm. to die. And he says that some of the, the Death Eaters came out of kind of trances. We're going to learn later on that yeah, the Imperius was a, a powerful weapon uh, in, in the hands of other dark wizards to take control of people. So all of these, uh, even though... They're sort of given in non-committal fashion. He's just sort of throwing out ideas, his own opinion, take it or leave it. Uh, he's, he's giving us details that we're going to uh, be able to sort of sink our teeth into and really understand later on. Mm-hmm. So then, after the insult of Dumbledore, Hagrid loses his temper, and... Even though it was Uncle Vernon that made the insult, Hagrid goes after Dudley. And Alex and I were talking about this. Is this to me is the most interesting moral question. <laughs> is it okay for Hagrid to punish Dudley for the insults of his father? Well, before, what we had said was <laughs> clearly um, they're stupid and fat son is the most important thing in their life. So that's the pressure point that you attack. Mm. Um, and so I, yeah, mor- morally, yeah, it's kind of a low blow. Like Dudley, Dursley, Vernon Dursley said the thing. And so why, why not attack him? He's the one who keeps, who's really kept Harry in the dark and, and who's, you know, insulting him and his world and his parents and his, you know, headmaster and all of this. and, and Doubtlessly, Dudley has played a significant role in making Harry's, Harry's life, life hard, awful. Sure. However, he is still... A child. Ten. <laughs> <laughs> he is a terrible ten-year-old, but he is a ten-year-old. And Vernon yeah. is a fully grown man, and not the one given a disfiguring uh, enchanted right. tale. Yeah. And, and so, I feel like... In the book, it's like, wow, why? And it makes a little more sense in the movie. Mm-hmm. They have Dudley go after the cake. Right. They take and Hagrid's that like, question out final of straw. Yeah. You're eating Harry's birthday cake. You're a pig. I'm yeah. turning you into a pig. Like, that's mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. In the book, it's like, whoa, Hagrid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. They're that power having two sides right. to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if there's a parallelism... Uh, between Vernon calling Dumbledore 
Hagrid's perhaps dearest relationship, hmm. a crackpot old fool, and the logic being, you've you've gone after someone I love. I will go after mm-hmm. someone you love. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, of course, it it really does. It introduces some deep sort of ethical questions, because Dudley is not just disfigured in a silly way he's howling in pain mm-hmm. at, at what's been done to him i think i think it's it's really interesting that never does rolling allow us to entertain the idea that uh, the the wizarding world is set up in in black and white mm-hmm. that there's clearly pure good uh undeniably righteous characters um there's always some ambiguity. Yeah. There's always some discomfort with the way people respond. Uh, I know even with the way Harry develops as a person, there were times, there still are times, when I get really, really frustrated with Harry. Yeah. And I, w- I even wish that he would have been written differently so that he could have um, a better character in, the mo- in some moments when it counts. But that wouldn't be as realistic, uh, because um, no one in the world is without their blind spots, their faults, and their character deficiencies. And Rowling, I think, is profoundly truthful in that regard. Yeah, and I think you're right also that if if she's going to be that way and make sure that every character has those faults... Um, that for Hagrid's character faults to include over-aggression when he feels those he cares about most are threatened or insulted, um, and a, a degree of cruelty in that um, fits with his part giantness. And that what we think of when, when we're described later on what giants are like, their cruelty, their viciousness, and their irritability mm. are three things that I think stand out very strongly yeah. and while you know this isn't the same as eating anybody um, <laughs> this it, it comes out in that small manner mm-hmm. um, but I, I do think there would be a lot of people that would still argue that I mean Dudley had this one coming because he talks about again talks about uh, kicking Harry around like a football. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harry talks about like the punishing punches that he gets from Dudley. I mean, so as far as the the, the painful physical element, you know, this is kind of, sounds to me kind of like a spanking from mm-hmm. a magic wand or a, a, one of the yeah. you know, the the pink umbrella that Hagrid uses. Well, and there has and, already been piggy language yeah. applied to Dudley, which makes this you know. Appropriate. It's good closure yeah. for Harry. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's interesting. You know, we, we get introduced to Hagrid as this, you know, bastion of security and this, you know, the the first magical person that Harry gets to gets to know. But then as we learn about him, we're like, oh he was expelled. Oh he's not supposed to do magic at all. He's operating outside of the law. Oh he just attacked that child. You know, like <laughs> he's not he's not the perfect role model. But there are so many awesome things about Hagrid that are are still, you know, really beneficial for Harry as as a role model. Um you know he's just he's he's kind and he's he really is gentle even though he is a giant, and he's um, 
you know, just loving and, you know, we'll see later in Diagon Alley, he really is this kind of parental figure that Harry's never had. Yeah. I kind of like, I mean, how you described it, Crystal, and that, like, I kind of see him looking up to Dumbledore as kind of like a dad, and then eventually maybe serious. but, I mean, Hagrid is kind of like that, that uncle that's not strictly by the book, you yeah. know, but, like, he cares deeply about Harry right. and will do anything for him. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think we all can agree that we just love Hagrid and mm-hmm. love who he is. I think, too, um, just kind of back to your point, Alex and Vera, about it being um, definitely morally questionable that Hagrid gives Dudley a painful pill. I think that it was sort of an attack on Vernon, too, just in the regard, you know, that he's tried so hard to protect Dudley all this time, and he's never offered that same sort of security to Harry. So, you know, even when Hagrid comes in, he says, like, don't touch anything he gives you. He never gives that same warning to Harry. And so it goes back to Hagrid being Harry's place of safety, where he's never had that with Vernon. And I I just think it's... Definitely questionable that he gives him the tell, but I think it just sort of solidifies, at least for me, that this is Harry's safe place. This is where he will find his identity. This is where he will find who he truly is and where he comes from. And this is just Hagrid's kind of way of finally giving Harry some some sort of, like, vengeance, some sort of mm-hmm. final, like, somebody is going to stand up to these people for me. Yeah. Wolfert? Mm-hmm. When Hagrid's story about being expelled from Hogwarts begins to introduce part of the reason why he loves Dumbledore so much, because Dumbledore let him stay on as gamekeeper. Uh, Of course, we know that there is more to this story that's going to be revealed in book two, but Harry's question, why were you expelled, it doesn't get answered. Uh, But that's going to raise even more questions of injustice and otherness. And ethics. And, and, and ethics, yes. <laughs> yeah, lots, of, lots of ethics involved in that one, yeah. Um, but, you know, these big themes of um, the other being blamed uh, and, and devalued and there being a, a sort of systemic injustice in the structure of wizarding society is going to be reflected uh, in the, the tale of Hagrid's expulsion. Um, but Rowling is kind of just teasing us mm-hmm. with that right now. She's raising the question of why he was expelled, but not going to answer it yet. Right. I just, and just quickly, I love like the whimsical idea of Hagrid's coat and all the pockets, and he's just pulling like kettles and owls and <laughs> all kinds of nonsense <laughs> out of these pockets. And you know, he's got money, he's got, and, and it's just like live things owls and dormice that you would expect. Like, once you know Hagrid, you're like, of course, he's got animals in his pockets, you know. Um, it's just, it's just so neat. Like, there's, there's nobody like this in Harry's life, you know, that is just this kind of mystery box of of fun and intrigue you know he's, he's also losing a lot of things you know he's always having to empty pockets i mean we see that in diagon alley so he's mm-hmm. you know he's still clumsy and like it yeah. just adds to his character yeah. well that brings us to chapter five then yeah. mm-hmm. diagon alley huge chapter huge chapter but after the Chapter, chapter 4, Keeper of the Keys, which takes place in a hut, 
sort of in, in the context of this dark and stormy island in the middle of the sea, Diagon Alley feels like a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. It's a much, it seems a much more lighthearted, fun chapter uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're introduced to tons of little tidbits about wizarding culture. Uh, and, and it's always fun to come across these for the first time because uh, when you've read, you know, Harry Potter through, you know, 15 times or more, wizarding culture is your culture at this point. And it's easy to forget what it's like to say, give him five canuts. What is a canut? Like, we, and we would be asking the question with Harry. Oh, the little bronze ones. Okay, well, all right. And, and we, we're slowly being introduced to this totally new world where sending off an owl rolling says, uh, looks as simple and as normal as hanging up the telephone. Mm-hmm. But because it is, and we won't be thinking twice about sending an owl, you know, in a couple of chapters, but mm-hmm. it, it really is a sort of magical introduction, slowly but surely, and I think that really is a part of the, the enchantment of the way she has written the first book, mm-hmm. is that we're, we're slowly moving in to the wizarding world, being surprised with every turn of the page, but never being overwhelmed with more uh, sort of data and details than we can handle yeah there was one detail that did really take me out although oh, we're gonna get there we're not there yet well i'm bringing it up because he brought it up, up the the allocation of money so to have a to have as your currency system and i don't see described in harry potter at any other point any alternative currencies or any no, other denominations just, just in other coins. countries just those three coins seem to be universally accepted even if you know, the wizards are coming from other countries or whatnot. Um, and these three coins have denominations that don't make any sense. I mean, 17... 17 nut, sickles to a gallon. To a gallon. 29, 29 nuts, nuts to, to a, a, sickle. a sickle. Okay, and these these denominations... Those are stupid numbers. <laughs> I mean, I can't think off the top of my head if 29 is prime, but I'm pretty sure 17 is prime. Which means that there's not really any easy way to subdivide any of these things, um, and I understand the need to you know the, the idea of being whimsical and different yeah. and whatnot. But there's lots of alternative money systems available that they could have chosen. Other denominations of factors you know that they could have picked that would have been just as whimsical without being nonsensical. Like twelve, you know, a, a base twelve system is is subdivided by six, by four, by three, by two. You know, very easy to subdivide, and yet at the same time, um, you know, is, is would be very strange right. for most people. Yeah, honestly, I think that's what it was. I think she just picked two numbers that she thought were funny and whimsical. And then had Hagrid say, easy as that. And then, yeah. like, moved on from there. And we never hear those numbers again. You know, yeah. now it's just, it costs five galleons. And we're like, okay, that's five big gold coins. We got it. You know, and so, like, after that, we never hear about the denominations again. Because it's weird and confusing. And she knows that. But it is crazy. Like, your salary at the Ministry of Magic, is it in galleons? Yeah. I guess it would be. Like, that's a lot of galleons yeah. <laughs> I mean, for what, your annual salary. Or, or do you guys have checks? Are there credit cards? Like, what's the system? I thought that, too. So I, they're they're <laughs> wizards, and they're like, how do you carry around all yeah. that? You know I mean? Obviously, they've got magic, so sure. that, that, that explains some of it. Like, what is... A detectable extension term on every pocket to carry all my galleons. I mean, the, the macroeconomic policy that <laughs> must be... I mean, what, does Gringotts Bank have a... Have a, a you know, board of commissioners? Do they 
how do they, you know, regulate I interest rates? I think we rates? know that the you know, goblins are very organized. Right. We saw that. In Apparently, Grand yet so. at the same time we visit Harry's vault, he's it's actually a vault full of money. Like it's not yeah. an account, so there's not interest yeah, being he born. He, he, he's been that. sitting there on on piles of gold for ten years. I mean, <laughs> this is enchanted, madness. Enchanted interest. Oh, Perhaps, like it actually, it just, it like, just it actually multiplies. It, yeah. The physical, so, we are gallons, we are yeah, going a rabbit hole, but we've got to pull back up. Google has a Muggle money like calculator for you, so we don't really have to have this discussion. It will calculate it for you. <laughs> but does. I also think, it, like, from the perspective of being inside a culture, it's not madness. It's not nonsense. Like, there are plenty of things that if we thought for, like, five minutes about modern American the culture in the in the American South in particular, which is where we are, beloved listeners, um, <laughs> we would be able to put our finger on something that, from an outsider's perspective, would be totally ludicrous. Um, whether it, it had Sweet to do tea. with our, our language, our, our diet, perhaps even our currency system, or the way we, we do economics in our society. But... The lack of inclusivity in our plural nouns. That <laughs> clearly was the first thing yeah, no, that everybody just, thought of. Yeah, well, but, isn't it so confusing when you say the term we and you don't know whether or not you're including the people that you're talking to or you're talking about some other group of people? Wouldn't it be great if we had like one word that was we that included the people you're talking to? Yeah, I'm cutting and you one off. Word, okay. There's no more for you. Yeah, but a perfect example of something that from an outsider's perspective might be nonsense. Um, but from an insider's perspective, I mean, it, it is the air you breathe, and yep. there's no alternative. Yep. Well, I think we're introduced to a lot of firsts in this. I mean, like, we in the Keeper of the Keys, we got little tidbits, you know, and I feel like this is a, a buffet line yeah. of just different things that we got. I mean, there was all these different wizarding institutions, you know, you see the shops in Diagon Alley, you see, of course, Gringotts, mm -hmm. you, you get introduced to Quidditch, and they have a, a paper, you know, the Daily Prophet, and yeah, I mean, like, there's all this other stuff, um, just wizarding institutions um, that are a lot of firsts that play out, play out um, in major roles in different books. But I think what's what's really like sweet and sad is the way that she starts the chapter where Harry wakes up and he doesn't want to open his eyes because he's pretty sure that all that last night was a dream. He'll be home in my in his yeah, cupboard. I'm in my cupboard. <laughs> like he doesn't want to let himself hope. Yeah. You know, I'm in my cupboard. Petunia's about to wake me up. It was all a dream, and then he wakes up to uh, the owl tapping on the window, magic coming back. And it's just, it's so wonderful. You know, look, you get to hope. You get to have an awesome life. Here we go, Harry. Um, yeah. So it's just so sweet. About those institutions, one thing that I that has constantly sort of become a theme of my thinking about Harry Potter, but is really introduced here, is why they don't magic themselves out of certain practices. You know? Like, we know later on that you can use a Patronus to deliver messages. Super quick, super easy. Instead, we know that all the time people use letters. They write to each other in, in handwriting. You know, they don't have some spell where they just... Everything like a Ponzi message. Exactly. Like um, they, don't have a, they don't have like a text from voice that just like, boom, the message is on the paper. And boom, the paper is immediately the person. 
or uh, the scales. I thought that was particularly strange. You know, in potions, they don't seem to use a spell that automatically weighs mm. what you want to the correct amount. Instead, you measure it yourself with a scale. Right? That sounds awful. <laughs> I know. It does. I mean, even today, like, like my thought was like, goodness me, I mean, I, I use an electric scale for baking. Like, goodness, <laughs> to use actual weights on a yeah. scale would be so yeah, annoying. But at the same time, like, this is obviously a choice. Mm-hmm. So what does it it's say like about the how culture, they value like these the things? Like the French, who, like, won't let go of, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it is it's sort of interesting amalgamation of, like, archaic practices that we as muggles have, you know, bypassed with technology mixed with magic. Well, that what you just said there, though, that makes me think, are, are we playing into a Vernon and Petunia role? I mean, like, is all of this just madness? You know, I mean, because that's what they say is, like, everything about the wizarding world is just foolishness, you know? I mean, and that's kind of the way we're talking about it right now, a, a little bit. Well, a little microcosm of it. I mean, is, is it foolishness? One thing it made me think of... Is that of, okay? I, I don't know. Foolishness to those who don't belong to the world. Mm-hmm. It also made me think of this sort of deep political conservatism within the wizarding world, that perhaps the reason why they don't give these things up is because they find such weight in the cultural value of these practices that it binds them together in such a way that even if there is a more efficient alternative, efficiency isn't the only Mm -hmm. thing they value. Mm -hmm. They don't just care about getting the package there as quickly as they can. They love their owls. Mm -hmm. And they could never give that up. It's only because we're a society that's so obsessed with efficiency that Mm -hmm. we ask these questions. Mm -hmm. Because we're like, why would you take the time to hand write a letter and wait for the owl to go all the way there and wait days for the owl to come back? And like, but I think that just reflects more about our society's Mm -hmm. values, which is total everything efficiency. Yeah, meaning that magic is not for them the equivalent of technology for us. Yeah. yeah. Because modern people really put no limits on technology as long as efficiency is possible to a greater degree. Whereas some practices, like we see uh, in the Weasley's kitchen, like they're magicking the spoons to, to help cook. Um, and yet there are other practices where they're not going to take shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Um, or they, they're using magic for, for cooking, for instance. Uh, they're using magic in a way that still preserves the creative process, even yeah. though it makes it easier in certain ways. So it, it's just interesting. I think you're right that it, it's not, they aren't uh, bound by uh, this pursuit of efficiency in the way that we are, uh, but rather consider some aspects of culture too sacred to be interfered with. I wonder if that's also part of Hogwarts, you know, not uh, permitting electricity, right? There's like an enchantment that won't well, have magic cell phones, interferes right? interferes with yeah. the technology is, I think, how Hermione described it. Okay, so it's, it wouldn't exactly be a barrier so much as just a natural yeah. obstacle. I do think it's interesting that the one time we see some sort of invention like what you're talking about, this like talk to text, is with Rita Skeeter mm-hmm. and book mm-hmm. four and everything that is produced by this quick quotes quill mm. is just like malicious slander. Yeah. Mm. So it's really interesting that in the efficiency, where her seeking this efficiency, it actually just helps her be a terrible person. <laughs> when was book four written? Was this the inspiration of Twitter? 
Is this how this all came to pass? <laughs> Not sure, so. but I, I will say, sometimes looking at J.K. Rowling's Twitter feed, it's yeah. a little malicious. It is really <laughs> like malicious. It's, it's got a little Rita Skeeter streak in there. That's yeah. another green, acid green. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good, good call. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Green coming yeah. up. <laughs> I find it interesting when Hagrid introduces the idea of the Ministry of Magic. Yeah. And Harry asks, well, what, what do they do? Uh, he says, well, they, they keep... Um, muggles from knowing that there are still witches and wizards up and down the country. And Harry's like, well, why? He says, why? Blimey, Harry. Everyone would be wanting magic solutions to their problems. And I was just thinking, well, that's a pretty optimistic assessment. Like, okay, maybe they would want magic solutions to their problems. But more than likely, this sort of low-grade antipathy that we've been seeing that really gets sort of tapped into in Fantastic yeah. Beasts in the film. Like, there's there's a much darker possibility. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think if we look back at the creation of, what is it, the International Statute of Secrecy, yeah. there were a lot of really dangerous and, and destructive events uh, surrounding the inauguration of the statute of secrecy and it wasn't just a matter of non-magic people wanting magical solutions to their problems yeah i also like this just because this is kind of a way to make it seem like just for a little bit that this may be you know real you know like the mat like we can almost reach out we don't know it's there, you know, because right. the ministry is keeping us from knowing it. But yeah. we've got a window into it right here through this book. But this could just yeah. perhaps be real. Right. Um, and it's, I don't know. I feel like that's almost a magic in itself just to have that in there. It's very tantalizing mm-hmm. to think about. And Alex and I talked some about how, you know, everybody would want be wanting magical solutions to their problems. Well, if there were philanthropic wizards who wanted to make the lot of muggles better, maybe feed the hungry kind of thing. Um, we can't have people going up and down the country <laughs> getting rid of tuberculosis, I, know. I mean, we can't just and like... We don't, we don't know how much, you know, wizards have delved into modern medicine or whatever. We don't know if they sure. really have cures for things that, that muggles are ailing with, but we know that if you've got some food, you can multiply it. <laughs> and so, you know, I that was one question I was like, well, if there's one good wizard, there should be no hungry people. One one good wizard that had a lot of time and, and, and energy, right? Yeah. Well, and I think in the Tales of Beetle the Bard, there's a story called I believe it's called The Wizard and the Hopping Pot. Uh-huh. And the whole sort of moral of that story is about a wizard serving uh, his neighbors with his magical ability, and so that that's that's interesting. That even in Rowling's vision of magical folklore, their version of fairy tales or or uh, Aesop's fables, mm-hmm. um, there there is that idea, and yet with the statute of secrecy, uh, they they have elected that sort of dividing these two communities with a veil of ignorance Mm -hmm. is safer for everyone involved. Right. Yeah. And that's another one of those things. Well, you know, well, how come they're hungry people? Well, they can't, they can't help us because we have to be separate. We can't know that we're there. 
And so that's another way of maintaining the illusion to the child that's reading that this is a real world. It could be mm -hmm. out there, mm -hmm. um, but they can't let you know about them. It's for everybody's safety. <laughs> Did anyone else kind of smile whenever um, Harry unfolded the second piece of paper, giving him you know, the, the list of things he needed to buy? I don't know. At that point, for some reason, like it just... It made me smile, and it just really just dragged me in. Mm -hmm. And I and I love the names, by the way, of the people right. writing the books. And oh yeah, had to be just cr it's creative. I mean, and it's it's funny yeah. just to hear the the names of the people. But I find it interesting that one of the four necessary purchases is one plain pointed hat, black for, for daywear. Day day <laughs> and we see black hats in the first film. But those hats don't figure prominently mm -mm. in really any of the stories, do they? And certainly not in any of the films. I mean, by book three, the costumes that Harry, Ron, and Hermione are wearing, it, it looks like they just Muggle walked Bros. out of Old Navy or something. Yeah. I'm like, what is going <laughs> there on There was here? that one movie that it was like, that the, I think the director went in a different Yeah, it's direction. like Hermione's <laughs> wearing, yeah, she's wearing like a... a zip-up yeah. sweater or something. It's like, that's not the magic clothes. Everybody's got a little zip-up hoodie. Yeah. On. It's like, these are the these are the plainest outfits. You couldn't walk down the street in London, even as a non-magical person wearing that. You would be shamed off the street. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, the hats are never mentioned again. Mm. So, may, I don't know. Maybe that's just like one quick nod to the history of witches and wizards. And, Ooh, also. Yeah. I was just saying the name tags, but I guess it could be an internal name tag. You don't see people wearing name tags. Oh, I think it's just like so the house elves yeah. can tell whose robe is whose. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. That's exactly what I picture when I read that line. Yeah, like, like house when, elves sorting. Yeah, yeah when you when you go to camp, like when you went to summer camp, yeah, your underwear or whatever. <laughs> also, I guess we can give a nod to Fantastic Beast and where to mm -hmm. find them right here. Yeah. There's Newt, and that's one of I, I think the most magical parts of the Harry Potter universe is that Rowling has not only told us about other pieces of literature in the world, she's actually written those down for us so that we can go and we can get a copy of The Tales of Beetle the Bard. We can get Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, not the screenplay, yeah. the book. The book. And Quidditch Through the Ages. And Quidditch Through the Ages. And I am waiting for The Life and Lies of Albus oh, Dumbledore. Yeah. I want Please. that book. You're not so bad. We want that. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, if She's you're listening, <laughs> we need Sorry, you we to start writing. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me, though, that the most important book on that list is A History of Magic by Bethelda Bagshot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's Ms. Bagshot that ends up having, I think, the most profound effect on how the rest of the story goes. As and the opposed creepiest. To... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> some dark magic. You read it here, and I, I mean, the first time I read it, my eyes just went right over it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Like, that's not even well, an interesting think, name. Yeah. Right. It's I not think... like Newt writing about right. animals or, mm -hmm. um, you know, any of the other ones that that have the clear alliterative yeah. element. Bathilda oh, really and Bagshot don't sound like history. But I think that's... That's one of those things, like... Ma history of magic is one of those things that we gloss over through the entire series. Except for Nobody Hermione. likes Professor Ben's 
He drowns. He's dead. And he's not interesting to talk to or listen to. And everybody just zones out during that class. It's all goblin uprisings and things they're not interested in. When I really want to know the history of magic. Yes. <laughs> you yes. know, I wish yeah. that was an interesting class yeah. because I want to take it. <laughs> so that's what, JK, that's what I would like you to write. Yeah. The History of Magic by Mathilda Bagshot. I think that would be I'll just take Professor Benz's interpretation Well, because then it, it covers, like, the history's version of Harry. Mm-hmm. Like, at that point, because, mm-hmm. I mean, Hermione is always referencing this book, and there's just a lot in it, it sounds mm-hmm. like. And now right, it's yeah. for the record. That you, you want, can't operate outside of Hogwarts is you, in that book. You want a, a macroeconomics textbook as well. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> we can, we can provide the full <laughs> list of Hogwarts economic, Hogwarts. political, and sociological explanations for yeah. the various, <laughs> along with, you know, at least some, perhaps some genetic uh, trees of the various magical species and how they're interrelated. And, you know, that would also be helpful. I, I read through most of the. Um, uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And it, while it is an excellent overview, it doesn't really seem to provide much in the way of, you know, how the species are interrelated, how they were yeah. found, um, you know, uh, physical descriptions, markings, you know, things like that. It's just... It, yeah. it, you want the book for AP Care of Magical... Right. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. Okay. You know, perhaps some uh, with some helpful illustrations. Yeah. That'd be nice. Well, we, we can we get to the leaky cauldron? We can. Okay. Oh, sure. Here, I, I love I love the little details. We feel like we're meeting people for the first time, mm. uh, and and in some cases we are uh, with Professor Quirrell. He'll, yeah. he'll be an important character. I'm sure we'll have something to say about him. But before we get there, we meet Daedalus Diggle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've actually met this character twice already. Uh, uh, once in the first chapter, he's like the one that uh, McGonagall accuses mm-hmm. of like doing Shooting something off crazy, right? Or yeah, something. and celebrating too wildly. Yeah, he said that must have been Daedalus Diggle. Uh, and then, but we've also uh, seen Diggle uh, in just a, a, a random chance encounter where he bows to Harry. This is something that um, that Harry actually remembers. You bowed to me once in a shop. So it's it's just. Those are fun details. Mm-hmm. Going back, you know, uh, again with with the book club to say, oh wait, where where have I seen this character before? I'm actually going to take the time to work out all the places that Rowling's written him in already. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if he comes in later. Does Dennis Diggle? Where does he feature in later in the story? I think he, think he takes the Dursleys away from Privet Drive yes. in Book Seven. He's a member of the Order of the Phoenix, yeah, he's right? A, yeah. mm-hmm. I, knew- I think that is his job because he's like he's the so most spunky and yeah, happy he's and like the most annoying <laughs> wizardy wizard you could ever choose to like deal with the Dursleys, which is perfect <laughs> which dimensions. Is perfect, yeah. I thought it was the only one that like wouldn't be like down spirited about the whole thing. Wouldn't Probably be able to be true. torn down Probably by true. the insults and. Probably true. I know me and Crystal talked about this, and I I liked how you described it if you want to, um, about how he steps into the wizarding world for the first time, I guess, in the Leaky Cauldron. Um, Right? Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's the entrance into the magical world. It's it's where magic sort of seeps into the Mm -hmm. muggle world. Mm -hmm. I even love, like, the symbolism of the name. It's the Leaky Cauldron. Like, magic Mm -hmm. is leaking Mm -hmm. out into Mm -hmm. the muggle world. That's great. Um, And this is sort of where he steps into who he really is. It's 
I can't remember how we were saying it. Earlier. Well, I mean, I think it was just the complete extreme to what he had been living. You know, he was hated by, I mean, the Dursleys and uh, ignored by them, you know, for who he was. I mean, even who he didn't know who he was, and, and that was one of the reasons why they hated him. And then he steps into the Leaky Cauldron, and all of a sudden... You know, there are people with tears in their eyes. They're lining up for 10 minutes, and people are going around and around. Yeah, trying. like Dopey and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Exactly. They're trying to get a handshake. They're saying, thank you, you're famous, you know, and you got to think for this 10-year-old kid. He's I mean, never been smiled yeah, at. Yeah, right. I mean, this is, this is just one extreme to the complete opposite extreme. Um and this is who he is, you know, and he's in, in the wizarding world. thrust into that role of like leadership too immediately. It's even yeah. as a ten-year-old, he feels like this weight of this stuff hanging on him. I mean, even like when Hagrid's telling him who he is, he says like, "These people think I can. Why do they? Why do these people think I can do all of this? What if I'm not good enough?" He's got these questions about it because of his past. These people are like so thrilled about him finally rejoining their world, and they mm-hmm. say like, "Welcome back." It's not. It's not even an acknowledgement of like now he's coming into it it's like you've been missing like we've been missing you and that's so sweet mm-hmm. yeah because he's been missing it too just yeah. not knowing what it was yeah. rolling does another thing here that i think i feel like it's borrowed from other british literature um i've seen it before we see it in uh, the um doctor who stories all the time um, british literature yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's a perception filter uh, and uh-huh. at least that's how it's described in Doctor Who, right. where people, there's this psychic block, so to speak, where something may be somewhere, but our perception is always pushed away from that thing, and so people just don't notice it. And that's exactly how the Leaky Cauldron is described, right? Their mm-hmm. eyes slid from the big bookshop on one side to the record shop on the other as if they couldn't see the Leaky Cauldron at all. And I think that's can't. such a... Yeah. We know they can't see it. They can't see it. Yeah, yeah, because there's this perceptive block there. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was the way she described it fits so well with these other things I've seen. I wonder if perhaps she's a Doctor Who fan who (laughs) picked up that element. Another aspect of the narrative that makes children readers wonder if it just might actually be there. Right. Because yeah. we it's just can't see it. Almost an invitation to pay more attention uh-huh. to mm-hmm. the magic that's already there in your world. Oh. Um. Yeah. It's <laughs> no. That needs to be on a quote. You know, so, no, pay attention. Uh, I mean, mug I, remember, somewhere. I remember reading this as an 11 year old and like legitimately going into the world and looking for signs. Mm-hmm. I mean, this book came out when I was. I, I, we're probably all about the same. Like I grew up with Harry, like yeah. so. I I was introduced to this as he was, and it was so sweet. Like it's especially sweet now to look back and see. Like I really did look around for mm-hmm. signs like that and wonder if there was something else out there and hope to see owls during yeah. the daytime yep. and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And I knew exactly Absolutely. what they would be. Oh yeah. Particularly, I wanted one to fly through my window, but <laughs> deliver me a letter. Never happened. But. Well, one interesting thing I think she does is um, the leaky cauldron almost for a second is a letdown because Hagrid's like, oh, you know, we're 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 gonna go and get all your magic stuff, and then he takes them into this like shabby, grubby pub. Besides, this is famous, right? Yeah, it's like, a famous it, it, pub. This is a famous and, pub, and there's like some witches drinking sherry in the corner <laughs> or whatever, and Harry's like, what is this place? But it is like this intentional, I think, front 
um, for the amazing, like, magical haven that it's hiding. Yeah. Um, you know, you would expect the entrance to the magical world to be more like Gringotts, you know, marble and all this glory and stuff, but it's like this little secret dive. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. The, the, that, like, the, the best thing that Harry has ever encountered comes dressed shabbily. Mm-hmm. In rags. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think we can't leave the Leaky Cauldron without saying that Trevor has been to the inspiration for the oh, Leaky Cauldron. Oh, yeah, that's Cauldron. right. So yeah. can, you, can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, it's a little pub in Exeter, England. Um, I had a meat pie for mm. the first time in my life. And it was so much food. There was no way... A single human of my size could have eaten this amount of food. And I asked the folks, like, could I have a to-go box? And maybe those don't exist in England, but they looked at me like I was insane. They gave me tinfoil <laughs> to, to package up the remains of a meat pie, which, for the record... It's like wet pot roast in yeah. a crust. <laughs> and so I was, I was at a loss for what to do. But it, uh, it, it's, it's old. It's, it's wooden. It really does look magical. There are fireplaces mm. everywhere, which reminded me of the flu network. And mm. I got to sit on the top floor at this old wood table. And it, it, was, it was really fascinating. Cool. Well, I guess before we leave uh, the Leaky Cauldron, we got to talk about Professor uh, Quirrell because mm. he's there. The stammering Professor Quirrell. Right. Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, very important. Yeah, who was fine as long as he was studying out of books, mm-hmm. but he took this trip and mm-hmm. he's never been the same since. Mm-hmm. They said he met vampires in the Black Forest. So, so we know he truly, he truly was not the same after he came back, but the stammer is really not part of it. The stammer is something that he's put on, right? Yeah. Because when we get to the end of this book and all his pretensors are dropped, the stammer is also dropped. Mm-hmm. So he's really not a fearful, stuttering person. He's been changed in different ways mm. by his trip. And again, trying to cast any suspicion away from maybe what he has to do um, for he who must not be named. Mm-hmm. Quirrell is almost the leaky cauldron personified. Mm-hmm. It's this really unassuming person that you would never suspect. And I remember the first time reading through this book being absolutely shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in a way that might be akin to Harry walking into the leaky cauldron and realizing there's magic on the other side. Mm-hmm. You just you you don't expect it. Mm-hmm. Your eye glances over him. But there's evil on the other side. Yeah, not not good magic. <laughs> <laughs> really, really bad yeah. magic connected to the back of his head. His head, yes. Okay, so do you all notice that they grasp hands? that Harry and Quirrell touch, which is supposed to be, like, mm-hmm. impossible. Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I have thought about this since the first time I read this book, I'm pretty sure. Or maybe the second time I read through it, when I was, like, 11 and a half. But 
that always confuses me. And I don't know if it's because, like, maybe Voldemort's not living in his head yet. I think we can assume he is because yeah. the turban's on his head. But, like, how is that possible if he's not supposed to be allowed to touch Harry? Gloves. Uh, it doesn't say anything about that. I mean, I guess I could pretend he's wearing gloves, but it's either an oversight or there's something else going on there. Mm. I wonder if it has more to do with Harry's attitude at the time. Like, he's just shaking hands and greeting at this moment, but later mm. he's defending himself. And so that magical contact is different because mm. it's protection. Like whether it has, has to do with Harry's attitude or Quirrell's attitude. Right. Oh, yeah. Quirrell's not attacking him right now. Yeah. I mm. like that explanation. Mm. That maybe so the magic is better. invoked when... I'm, I'm still yeah. We should tweet that question. <laughs> yeah. And see if tweet us an answer, because that's a legitimate question. Yeah. It is. And, mm-hmm. and listeners, if you have any thoughts on this, if you've given a lot of thought to it and have any <laughs> theories, feel free to email in and, yeah. and tell us what you think on that point. That's interesting. Any interesting responses, we'll make sure to read on the air next time. <laughs> <laughs> That has always, that has honestly always bothered me. I can't remember. I have a couple do, lines like that. Do they, do they depict that in the movie? No. no. In fact, no. Quirrell doesn't touch Harry. Yeah. Purposely. Harry holds out his hand yeah, he and he goes, fearfully frightening subject or whatever. Yeah. So he has that. Yeah. Yeah. Purposely, they show that he's not touching Harry. Right. Which is, really just makes me more angry because it makes me think back to this line. Yeah, it makes you wonder if they recognized it mm-hmm. as an oversight and it was a chance to redo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like with Dudley and the cake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is problematic. <laughs> okay, so then we go out back and there's just a trash can and some weeds in a courtyard. But then, magically, the brick wall makes an archway, and here we are at Diagon Alley. Oh, so awesome. Mm. And I, could, I, I, I honestly cannot even think the words Diagon Alley without that, like, string trill from the yes. movie going on in my head. Do you guys know Diagon the Alley. theme? Yeah. <laughs> well, just like the, the theme when he walks in, that, you know, I can't. It's just so tied to that now, the score. I can't think of diagonally without saying it the way Harry says it. Diagonally. <laughs> diagonally. Where it sounds like diagonally. Yeah. I thought he did. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we're introduced to a lot of stuff. I mean, not quite overwhelmingly, but I mean, it's we're kind of Harry's eyes, and it says mm-hmm. he wished he had eight more eyes, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, like, yeah. you realize, I mean, you, she's conveying this scene of just there's so much to look at that is so unfamiliar to us and to Harry, and he's trying to take it in, trying to describe, I mean, what he's seeing. I mean, and I think she does a very good job here. Just, I mean, even with, you know, the kids at the window looking at the, the, the next, the fastest broom in the world, you know, the Nimbus 2000. I mean, um, she creates this world mm-hmm. that is, I mean, you can just so easily visualize it, and I love that. And maybe part of that is marred a little bit for me by, like, that idea of the movies, what's in the movies. But I just, I mean, I think this evokes imagination regardless of whether or not you've seen the movies. It it really is a staggering literary feat to think that she got the idea on a train Mm -hmm. and from there just wrote, rewrote, wrote some more 
until she had she had created what is basically a coherent narrative universe mm-hmm. uh, with its own culture, with its own language, its own customs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're only in chapter five of book one. Yeah. And we're already marveling at how complete uh, this narrative universe is. And it's not pretentious. Like, I would never say that Tolkien is pretentious, but you can tell that Tolkien is trying to create a literary universe. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's doing sort of the heavy lifting underneath the narrative to put you inside a complete world. For, for Rowling, you're just kind of, you're, you're walking through Diagon Alley with Harry. But it's just as real, I would, I would argue, as Middle Earth is, even though it's written very, very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite, um, I mean, I love this all, but I think the Ollivander scene, uh, particularly because of the just the connection from the wand and what that foreshadows, it's just one more really intriguing um, little nugget that she drops um, of just the curiosity of the particular wand that chooses Harry. Well, I think, I mean, from, yeah, Ollivanders, I mean, we get a sense. Of, what was it, like 382 B.C.? Am I saying that 382, right? 382, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, we get, when he walks into that shop, it's like, it's a sense of destiny. That's what I found. I mean, mm. they even said something, and I'm trying to find it here, about the dust. Um, where was it? Um, yeah, the very dust and silence in here seem to tingle with some secret magic. Like, this place is a place of destiny. And, I mean, this, again, is where we find uh, the, the famous line of, you know, the, the wand chooses the wizard. You know, it's not, not the opposite. And, again, it, it almost comes across as, like, your destiny is being chosen here, almost. Um, uh, I like that... She, in, in the book, she does things that aren't necessarily there in the movie where um, she talks about her, 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 Mr. Ollivander talks about Harry's parents and the, the wands that they had. Like, I think his uh, father had a one that was powerful and ex, excellent for transfiguration. And then, uh, you know, his mother had one that was good for charm work and things like that. And it kind of describes their character, but it's... To me, I'm, I'm trying to imagine, is it the wand that's completing their character, or is it you know, how they're using the wand? I, I don't know. And then again, of course, when he chooses his wand, you know, I mean, it that, him. That, yeah, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> Curtis, yes, this thank you for correcting This much has always yes. been clear to those learned in wand lore. <laughs> yes. Which yeah, and, doesn't and, seem to be very many people. Uh-oh. That's yeah. one of the no, two. Two that we've met. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, that's one thing Apparently that intrigued me so one much. in... North America or Africa? I, I was reading, like, there's about, there's a North American wand maker or something, but there's not very many. Yeah. yeah. Which, no, no, it's funny, when they when they go to the store, because Hagrid's like, oh, you want Ollivanders for a wand, only place for a wand. And it sounds literally. like, like oh, this is the best place to go, but really it's literally the only place you can go to get a wand. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Unless you want to go to, you know. Another country. Right, another country. The, the one other country where there's a wand maker. Yeah. Yeah, but... Obviously, we can expect great things from Harry. You know, I mean, he says that, and again, like he just reminds me of like a father time. Not only because he's just so old, um, but it, it's just like he know. I, you get a sense like he's almost Dumbledore esque. Like he knows things. 
Um, he's not Dumbledore for sure, but he knows things he's and he, he's wise. Mm-hmm. He he understands things that others don't. Um, I just for I, I get a sense of destiny from that shot. That's the best word I can think to describe that. I agree. I think there's a it's one of the things that struck me because I love to look into these details. 382 BC. There's not very many important things that happened that year. But one thing that is important was that was when Philip II of Macedon, Macedonia was born. And he is Alexander the Great's father. He had this sense of destiny his whole life, and he instilled that in his son. And it really was Philip II's work that allowed Alexander to create the army that he did that conquered the known world. Um so I thought it was peculiar that this place that's going to be a symbol of destiny, a place where people are informed of, mm. you know, where they're going to be, where they're going to get their power, was founded in the same year mm. as, you know, this man who was born, whose son conquered the world. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I've always found uh, Ollivander's discussion of Voldemort very unsettling though after all he who must not be named did great things and in the movie you know it's he's lingering on these terrible yes but great Mm -hmm. and you're like is this guy like messed up or something like is he like half wicked sympathetic somehow or as a wand maker does he just recognize extraordinary power when he sees it and he's naming that for what it is. Yeah, I think he's just fascinated by the power because yeah. this is what he studies. Yeah. But Still, that it, makes it is. him it's a little, little bit unsettling. Yeah. yeah, it's I mean, definitely it, an unsettling scene. And Harry, you know, comes away from it like, I don't think I like Ollivander. You know, yeah. I don't know about that that guy that was upsetting. But you know, at the same time, he's right. <laughs> you know, they were great things, but terrible. I mean, look. The, the idea, it reminds me, because this is the sort of thing I read in my free time, you know, the Autobahn, this amazing feat of public engineering, this high-speed transportation system throughout Germany was almost entirely built by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And it's something that Germany relies upon today as this spectacular, you know, piece of infrastructure mm-hmm. that was doubtlessly the a, a gift from national socialism mm. um that was the sort of thing i thought of great power he did they did some great great things the nazis in a sense because they performed this act but awful things mm-hmm. and that's the sort of awe that i think people that are really into their field they can see certain people and say, wow, they, they really did amazing and horrible things. But also in the scene, Harry gets the wand that he's going to have for almost the entire book series, the Holly and Phoenix Feather wand, which we learn is twinned with Voldemort's wand right off the bat. Yeah. Like, we learn that now. Um, but it doesn't really come into play until later. But I think it's interesting that she let us go ahead and know that. Like, this is... Watch out for this. At this point, <laughs> we think it's either just, a coincidence... Yeah, just weird. ...or rooted in the fact that you know, these tragic events that took place 
we we don't know that there's something far deeper. Right. Yeah. I, to me, I when I read that, I mean, I just thought again going back to Destiny, I just thought this is fate, you know, because yeah. again he says, remember, you know, the wand chooses the wizard. Mm-hmm. I think we must expect great things from you, Mr. Mm-hmm. Potter. I mean, in the same way that he expected great things from uh, he who must not be named, uh, he uh, expects great things from Harry Potter as well. This is also like the first connection we get, where Harry wonders maybe he's not wondering it yet but you know later he wonders if he's like Voldemort and this same this twin sort of wand is choosing him so this is like that maybe that it creates this little seed in his heart of like am I like Voldemort and we see that later play out in I think the next chapter even when he's sorted and you know he's like not Slytherin not Slytherin so it's just this is the building of him wondering if he's like Voldemort I did wonder though do you think this is at all part of a sales pitch? You know, I mean, how often, like, if every time you get a wand that really works for you, you expect to see sparks, does every kid come in there and they're like, oh, yes, you're going to do great things? I mean, they're 10. You know, you want to get them excited <laughs> about school and doing well and, like, you know, whatnot. And they're like, oh, yes, you're going to be spectacular. I got the beautiful big moon eyes and I look all haggard and old, but I'm, I'm super wise. I'm telling you. I, I'm gonna do great. I do, you know. I do his sales pitch, you know. I do think. Oh, oh, this is twinned with Voldemort. Oh watch. yes. Oh, uh, just, it just works out well. Only one other feather. Or something else like that. Oh, one other feather, and this one is related to Slytherin. Yeah. I do this think it was related to Hufflepuff. Like we pointed out earlier, so. there's no other place to get a wand. So does he need to, to have a sales no. pitch? Yeah, that's a good one. He's got monopoly. It, it is so cheap to get a wand. Okay, I just read in Half-Blood Prince, apparition lessons are 10 galleons. And I was like, how can Ron afford that? Galleons are like a lot. How is Ron just throwing out money for apparition lessons, 10 galleons? This is less than a lesson for apparition. This lasts your whole life. How is this sustainable if people only buy like one wand in their life and they only give all of it or seven galleons and there's only... How many new Hogwarts students here? Anyway. Like a hundred. I'm just saying. I, I think, again, this wands, you know, yeah. are not just his business. They're his life. They like, should it, cost more, though. They, yeah. I agree. I, I don't know. Again, this is probably because it's I the first wands, book. But wands do would, cost far more at Universal Studios. <laughs> True. For, yeah. the, for the record. For real. <laughs> Particularly when you leave one in the bathroom <laughs> and have to buy a second one. <laughs> yeah, that, anyway. that happens. Um, but we do see problem. when Harry's wand chooses him... That there are scarlet and gold sparks. Mm-hmm. Oh, but we see red sparks as a thing that come. I mean, uh, that's that's used more than once, right? Sending up red sparks is like a common red, red sign sparks. of distress. Yeah, red yeah. sparks is a sign of distress. But scarlet and gold are Gryffindor colors. Yeah, that's yeah. not any other thing. Um, that was definitely on purpose. But in the moment, we're like, oh, pretty colors, yay! You know, and then once we learn what Gryffindor's colors, we're like, ah. Yeah. That was intentional. Yeah, I just thought that perhaps, I mean, with those colors, like I mentioned earlier, it's, I mean, that that fight between I don't want to be like Voldemort, I don't want to be Slytherin, Mm -hmm. and then who who are you really, you know, deep down? I, I want to be like Gryffindor. I want to be courageous and brave and... And be you know fight for my friends and justice. How yeah. interesting that the thing that connects him with Voldemort first is also the thing that tells him who he truly is as a Gryffindor. Oh man, oh, man. that's deep. That's deep. 
Well, there are two other places, yeah. the two other scenes in this chapter that are really important. First is our journey into Green Gods, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because we just, we're teased with all of these details that are going to come up later. Yes. Like Hagrid says, you know, they say there's dragons, you know, yeah. down there. Uh, we meet Grip Hook mm-hmm. for the first time. But I have to say, something that bothers me about this scene is that Hagrid acts surprised at the speed of the cart that takes right. them to the vault. And he's he makes comments multiple times. I think I'm going to be sick, Harry. Like, grip hook, can we slow this thing down? Just one and speed. on the way back, uh, you do the talk. Like, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. And I'm like, Hagrid would clearly know, like, how fast the carts at Gringotts would, would go. I don't know. Uh, maybe Hagrid is a mattress stuffer kind of guy. He strikes me as <laughs> as the below the floorboards of the hut shoebox galleons guy. You know, like maybe Hagrid doesn't have a vault and he's only here on Dumbledore's business and he doesn't keep his money in the bank. But he 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 comes across as being so knowledgeable. He is our and maybe that's just because he's the first person who introduces us to Gringotts, mm-hmm. so we, we perceive him as the one with all the answers. Mm-hmm. I just, I found that difficult to believe. I just figured he got sick every time they went on it. Like, I just thought it was like a personal, you know, you get seasick. It's just, he just struggles with it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I hear that, but he asked Grip Hook, uh, Vault 713 now, please, and can we go more slowly? Yeah, as if I mean, as if he's surprised by the pace and the roughness of the ride. And I mean, maybe he had an ice goblin the first time <laughs> that allowed him to go slowly and yeah. grip hooks. Grip like, not the nicest. Yeah, yeah, we, we know he's not the nicest. He's like, no, one speed, man, one speed. <laughs> we're going. <laughs> I got, I got other stuff to do. My lunch break. It's cutting right. into that. You know, you, you never know what's going on. Grip right. hooks still bitter about the sword of Gryffindor. Yeah, he yeah. Is. and he it is. comes out in his cart driving. <laughs> I. Well, maybe we should just save that discussion for that that book then. What? Yes. I was going to say that I think it's fascinating to describe the goblin view of popper, uh, property. I mean, that's just, it's very interesting because it's so that no object made by a goblin could be owned by anybody except the creator in a total sense. Mm. That purchases are really, in a sense, a loan for the life of the person that is buying it, and then it is meant to be returned. It cannot be gifted away to somebody else or inherited. That is a that is a fascinating idea. Yeah. It sort of reminded me of the how in, in Israel every few years you had to reallocate the land in the Old Testament so that land would go back to, to people who had owned it, the families that had owned it originally, and debts would be forgiven. As opposed to just people owning it permanently. Mm, I just noticed something. What's that? The goblins' uniforms are scarlet and gold. Yeah, I kind of noticed oh, that too. Oh snap! I didn't, I didn't want. I didn't want to bring it up because I don't want to be playing the same You're violin. Color guy over, yeah, I'm gonna, gonna start say. focusing on. Oh, I'll, start, I'll look for all the colors. Yeah, I have them. That's in all Matt's gonna say for the next seven. <laughs> see that green? That's all that green. The green's there. <laughs> Oh my gosh, chapter six. Never mind. Sorry. It's a frog, but it's obviously brown. There's also another instance of green in here in this chapter having to do with uh, the goblins. I just can't remember exactly where it is. I didn't write it down. Green? Yeah, it's somewhere. 
But anyways, I, I did love, I mean, at the beginning of uh, Gringotts where we had the bronze doors and then the silver doors, you know, with the... Uh, the inscription or the engraving upon them, which that, I mean, when they, when it wrote that, you know, and it's, I mean, that gave me more of a sense of like, these guys are serious, you know, I mean, they've got some kind of old magic, you know, protecting these vaults. Mm -hmm. Um, I kept expecting to see, you know, a gold, a pair of gold doors, but, you know, then I started thinking that maybe you got, you got the bronze, the silver, maybe it's just protecting the gold, Uh you know, behind Uh that. I kept looking for the gold, but. And and that the 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 little poem that's there was was very Tolkien esque. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, that's you know Tolkien just intersperses his literature with pieces of culture, often in the forms of songs and rhymes. And reading that, it was like, ah, this is this is The Hobbit. This is Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think she she impresses on us really heavily in the beginning. You'd be crazy to rob this place. There are so many securities yeah. in like the yeah. terrible idea. Don't ever try to rob great dots. Yep. <laughs> and we know, you know, since the series is over, that Harry's gonna try to do that. Well and basically and what what she's saying is don't expect this to be a plot point later on mm-hmm. in the story. Because it's impossible. Because you could never do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which which Probably means that the discerning reader would say, "Oh, we're about to grow." Yeah, wrong green <laughs> oh, gods. we got wrong green gods. Yeah, uh, six books later, we do. What's interesting about this is that Hagrid's actual taking of the grubby little package mm-hmm. wrapped up in brown paper lying on the floor of Vault Seven Hundred Thirteen is like not even the most important thing that that we're introduced to here. Like, obviously, in terms of Book One. That's an important detail. And, you know, of course it piques our interest. But this scene at Gringotts actually introduces tons of other information. This right. going to be huge later on down the road. And I should say, also in Exeter, England, is the building that inspired Gringotts. And if you go in this little back alley, you can see down the street uh, the outline of this white building on the corner and you would swear you're looking at the face mm. of Gringotts Wizarding Bank. Wow. Mm. Isn't That's... that also sort of the Diagon Alley potentially inspiration? It is. It is. That that whole back alley street, which took forever to find because I asked so many people who lived in Exeter, where is the street that inspired Diagon Alley? And they were like, like who are you? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But the college students there at the university were like, oh, I'll take you. I'll show you. And, yeah, it's just this back alley place with sort of a hodgepodge of different shops. And uh, on the corner, this really striking building face that it's, it's sort of uneven and jagged like, like Gringotts was. And it was, it was really interesting. But J.K. Rowling went to the University of Exeter and... Um, uh, apparently, a lot of the architecture and, and sites around the city inspired different aspects of, hmm. the, you know, wizarding geography and architecture. There's one other thing I'd like to talk about too. Um, it's the first shot that he goes in afterward, and we meet a boy who we're not introduced mm-hmm. to. Um, we we just know he's he's a boy that's going to be going to Hogwarts with Harry, and we find out that. 
uh, there is overt prejudice in the wizarding world and Mm -hmm. that bloodlines are important to some. Mm -hmm. And uh, I definitely would like to talk about that because that's going to be, you know, a big theme in this book and a huge theme in much later books. Um, So... But it's slipped in. Yeah. You know, it's slipped in. We don't know yet that this sort of distinction between uh, wizard-born and, and muggle-born, uh, or, or wizards and, and muggles more generally, is going to be like the key conflict uh, in the canon of, of Harry Potter. But already, I mean, we are, we're at chapter five, and this theme has been hit on so many times if only we have eyes to see it. Mm-hmm. The, the thing is, this sort of othering, despising people who are unlike us, is so ingrained as an impulse uh, to us all that we see somebody doing it. Even, even repeatedly, we see multiple characters doing it. And we're like, well, this is, this is just part of the world. She doesn't smack us over the face with it so much as just introduce... You know, that, that this is just, this is part of the fabric of culture. Um, it's a fabric of our culture as well. It's also kind of where we're introduced to the prejudice against Hufflepuffs. Yes! <laughs> like, yeah. wow! Yes! I, it's, it's, it's almost <laughs> sad because, like, Hufflepuffs are never defined by their own, like, you know, they're just and loyal. Mm-hmm. They're never defined by, like, the goodness <laughs> and extremes of their house. They're defined by, like... You know, <laughs> who wants to be in Hufflepuff? That's where you go if you don't get in one of the other cooler right. houses. Right. It? So it's not even like only prejudice against like wizards. It's like within wizarding families, even mm-hmm. or wizarding yep. houses. It's like mm-hmm. even deeper. It's you can't just be a wizard. You have to be this kind of wizard. And, and, and even the pressure from your family, like Ron's, like if I'm not in Gryffindor, yeah. you know how stressful. There's this yeah. family pressure. And we're not helped in this regard by the YouTube video. <laughs> I'm a Hufflepuff. Like, I can't hear the word Hufflepuff without thinking about that YouTube video. I haven't seen that. I it's, haven't seen it well, it's very degrading to Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it then. <laughs> exactly. But I, I was thinking the exact same thing. I wrote in the margins, perhaps this explains why readers stereotype Hufflepuff. It's, and, and I think that's the power of first impressions mm-hmm. in this yeah. narrative. Like we, we said earlier, despite all of Hagrid's gruffness and and mistakes at times or, or poor decision making, we love him. Mm-hmm. And we are safe with Hagrid the way Harry is safe with Hagrid. Why? Probably in large part because that was our first impression of Hagrid. And I wonder how much of that Hufflepuff stereotype is due to this being... The first impression that we get. I think I'd leave, wouldn't you? I, I mean, that's And then that's later, awful. Hagrid does it too. Well, but Hagrid, like, everybody says Hufflepuffs are a bunch of duffers. Yeah. But... <laughs> like, oh, Hagrid. <laughs> well, they get their redemption in Cedric Diggory. Or not, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah Cedric, Cedric Diggory. Yeah. That's, that's right. He's well, and a lot of other Hufflepuffs as long stay. As he doesn't right. survive. There's a oh, handful. Never mind, I won't <laughs> yeah. go there. There's a handful of decent Hufflepuffs, but not nearly as many you know, key characters as we meet in the other houses. But so there's really also, think... isn't uh, Ernie McMillan yeah. mm-hmm. an annoying Hufflepuff, like a troublemaker? Or who he's, am I thinking he's of? He's just kind of he's pompous. Kind of a, he's yeah. Yeah. he's a, a duffer. Okay. I mean, he's, such he's a, a duffer. <laughs> he is. It's so funny, though, because I remember having read 
the books for the first time, going back and thinking, what house was Cedric Diggory? Mm-hmm. Ravenclaw. Obviously. <laughs> and, and I remember somebody said, no, he was a Hufflepuff. I was like, you're crazy. Have you seen the YouTube video? Like, he couldn't be a Hufflepuff. <laughs> Thank goodness, because there's no electricity. There's no way anybody at Hogwarts has seen that YouTube yes. video. Yes. Well, yeah. it's, yeah, clearly. Yeah. It, Malfoy is a, is a fascinating character, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, his development and complexity over the course of, of these seven books, I think, is... Is a real feat, but right now he's just a stuck-up kid with a pale face, uh, a pale pointed face. Mm-hmm. So I mean, e- even his his physical appearance sets us on edge almost. He's a sharp character. Well, he's also linked to Dudley yeah, in that. Yeah. You know, Harry mm-hmm. says uh, he kind of, he says strongly reminded of Dudley. Mm. Yeah, which is dead on. Mm-hmm. You know, another as as horribly spoiled, privileged single child um, who is going to make his life miserable I think I think predator Mm -hmm. is the word that I would use yeah he's a different Uh, kind of predator than Dudley you know he's not going to beat Harry up he's he's almost like a a social predator Mm -hmm. Um, but everything that Malfoy says in this in these couple of pages of this scene is aimed at Mm self-exaltation often via comparison with others that he considers beneath himself. Yeah. And yet again, I'm just struck by the fact that the whole um, trajectory of the Harry Potter story is about magical self-exaltation at the expense of others. And we see it right here in Madame Malkin's. Mm. I just noticed something weird. Uh, Malfoy's talking about so he's alone also at Madame Malkin's and he says my father's next door buying my books and mother's up the street looking at wands what yeah, is the purpose that of too. that mm-hmm. if the wand is going to choose you Draco mummy can't help with that but this is just kind of I guess that overprotective maybe, maybe she's trying to help you know narrow it down well, well maybe push the wands in the right direction yeah. like i want the powerful wands to be tested right. first you guys make sure you choose my son i don't know you guys you I, guys I, I thought well i thought it was strange <laughs> okay. yeah. you wands you choose my son well, <laughs> no, i think that's actually a really good point maybe she has she's not in the wand shop at all i mean whatever other business may be happening that the malfoys are involved with mm, i mean at this stage of the stuff. game mm. We She's have no idea. She's in doing something shady. Yeah. But that, that to me, actually was would be my first thought, because you're completely right. It makes no sense to yeah. be in a wand to, shop to buying somebody else's wand. Or she could just be looking around, because wand shops are fascinating. I mean, <laughs> at, at the end of... Like, Narcissa the, Malfoy. The Harry Potter no. movie studio tour in London... I just wanted to stay in the wand shop, mm-hmm. knowing that they weren't real wands. <laughs> I just liked the fact that all of these boxes were sitting around. It was yeah. really fascinating. Maybe <laughs> that's all she's doing. I, I also wanted to buy them. I think yes. your capacity for fascination is greater than Narcissa Malfoy's. <laughs> Maybe. Um, she just wanted she to never see. struck me. I can't see, though. Like, she, she is kind of, you get this idea of her being, like, a very over, overprotective mom and, yes. like, wanting the absolute best for him. So of I can see her, like, pre-vetting the wands. Her going in and be like, we're not even looking at that one. Yeah, you pull, you pull out the best ones you have for my son when he comes in here. Like, I could see that being a thing that she would do. 
I guess to me, it, it strikes me more that a mom would be there making sure that her son has picked out the right cloak and the right looking shoes and, you know, the highest quality, whatever it might be there. Maybe that's just my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> as opposed to, and a mother not trusting her son with the clothes choice as much as the, you know, the technical wand issue. I don't know. I, I think she's doing something shady. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think the purpose of the detail here, though, is simply to show that Draco is in control of his family. Mm, Like Like Dudley is in control of his. My father's next door buying my books, and mother's up the street looking at wands. And he sort of brings that detail out as if to say... I'm, I'm in control. They are yeah. doing my bidding here. Yeah, and then after this, I'm going to take them. I'm going to drag them to look at broomsticks. Right. Says. I think I'll bully father into getting right. me one, and I'll smuggle it in somehow. Yeah. And that bullying is what reminds him mm-hmm. of Dudley, and yeah, he's he's dead on there. I think something interesting that Rowling does uh, is in a, a paragraph where Malfoy says. I really don't think they should let the other sort in, do you? They're just not the same. They've never been brought up to know our ways. Some of them have never even heard of Hogwarts until they get the letter. Imagine. I think they should keep it in the old wizarding families. And we're intrigued by that remark because of the intense irony. And we're imagining how uncomfortable Harry must feel. Because he is the person that Malfoy is describing there. But Malfoy, or excuse me, Rowling draws our attention to this for one reason, but it's actually significant for a totally different reason. Not just because of the irony that Harry's listening to it, but again, because this is the ultimate tension that's going to drive the whole plot of the story. I, I love the way Rowling uses our lack of knowledge about the wizarding world to intrigue us and trick us at the same time uh, to fascinate us with one aspect of a detail but actually it's this other aspect that we never considered that's really what's fascinating yeah i also think you're totally right everything that malfoy says is a form of self exaltation he's comparing all the questions he asks harry is really just to see how much better am i than you Mm -hmm. And then at the end, he's never interested in, like, getting to know Harry. He's not said, you know, oh, what's your name? I'm, I'm Draco, you know? He, he says, what's your surname? Mm-hmm. He wants to know what mm-hmm. family he's from, so he can judge him based on that. Yeah. Well, he also brings up, um, and this is kind of shifting the gears a little bit, it brings up Quidditch. This is the first time we hear of Quidditch, mm-hmm. um, which is the wizarding sport, which, again, he The even, wizarding sport. The oh, wizarding sport, yes. One. The wizarding sport, and again... This is, I know I vented to Crystal about Quidditch, and uh, um, I, Hagrid says it's sort of hard to explain the rules. And it is hard. Re- really, I understand it's hard to explain the rules, but here's the simple rule for, for Quidditch, and it's catch a snitch, you win. That's it. <laughs> Not always. Not always. I mean, I, I do realize there's that, yeah, uh, maybe you can score more points than the snitch is actually worth. But it's. Did you see the World Cup right. final? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but it's still it gets me because pretty much every match is determined by who catches the. Yeah, match. having a good seeker That's can it. definitely change the game. If you have yeah. a terrible seeker, yeah. But um, you know, some really good chasers, you could still win. You yeah. still could, but you could have 
you could have. I, I'm trying to think of some some weird creature flying around on brooms, and then have one good seeker and that finds it really quickly, and boom. It's all bow truckles flying around on wands, and you got one good seeker, and you have the best team in the world. Boom. That's Sorry, funny. I got loud, but I mean, this is fresh. very close to your heart. So, yeah. really, th- this is this is stressful to me. These are the real questions. It, it, it is interesting because you expect Quidditch to be this remarkably complex thing, mm-hmm. and then you get to know Quidditch, and you're like, "That's not that hard. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is a pretty simple game." Yep. Mm-hmm. And there is, I mean, there is one other arguable wizard sport. Wizard chess. Yes, yeah, what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Which it's is not, it's not that different is, from is chess, a chess. That's a game. No, it's a game. It's a game. Well, well, is it on lots, ESPN in any of, of the games. numbers? They play Exploding Snap. They play, you know, what? what's the... There's like a, those, um, those frisbees... Fanged, fanged frisbees, like they've got games. Fanged frisbees? There are fanged frisbees, yes. They're not How allowed. How do you catch that? You uh, don't. Well, that's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Can't play ultimate but that. as far as like actual sports, Quidditch is the only one. But actually, in Quidditch through the ages, we learn that there are, or at least in history, were multiple wizarding sports, mm-hmm. even flying sports, mm-hmm. and yet Quidditch has sort of monopolized the market. Yeah, yeah Hagrid even says it's our sport. It's our sport. It's, it's what we it's do. It's our one sport. Yeah. Yeah. It's wizard. It's wizarding soccer. I wonder if when we learn more about the other wizarding schools and wizarding practices around the world, if we'll learn that perhaps Quidditch is more of a Euro thing in the way that soccer is a very European thing, um, and when we get to America or some other places, perhaps other sports will will dominate. Quidditch through the ages uh, outlines different teams from various continents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they play it all over. So while it, it may be sort cup. of like Eurocentric, it's a it's a global phenomenon and apparently growing in various parts of the world. Yeah. Even as we speak. Right. Wow. Right. Well, um we forgot to mention Hedwig. Hmm. Oh. Um who Hagrid gifts to Harry for his birthday and um Harry is almost shy to receive this birthday gift, um, which mm. is sort of indicative that he's never really gotten a birthday gift um, or that it's always been overlooked. So I just think this is really sweet that Hagrid is the one who kind of gives him this first gift. But then there's like this, I, I love Hedwig, but there's this like beautiful symbolism with her. Like she's this like white sort of pure innocent bird, but she's also like Harry's connection to the magical world while he's at Privet Drive and he even describes her as like the only person who wants him around at Privet Drive and I think it's really symbolic that Hagrid is the one who gives Hedwig to Harry since he's sort of also Harry's like first trip into the magic world the first person to introduce into the magic world so it's it's like Hagrid is continuing, I keep going back to this theme of safety, but he's like continuing to make sure there's someone who's watching mm-hmm. out for Harry while he's at Privet Drive. So that just, it endears you toward both Hedwig and Hagrid because he's saying like, here's your birthday present, it's multifaceted in that you can send her to me if these people are treating you badly. And also, here's your first birthday present ever. And it's just so sweet. Are we forgetting the socks that he got from yeah, the the hand-me-down socks. I always wondered if those were more gifts when he was away at Hogwarts, 
because it was like, well, we need to be seen as like sending him some sort yeah. of gift because like, what is the point, Vernon? Come on. Yeah, well, he, really... he did get socks, I think, in an earlier chapter, old socks. I, I thought that was because perhaps an owl bothered them so much that they threw something at the owl Could to be. take it to <laughs> Harry. Yeah. And that it was like, Dumbledore was like, hey, they should be sending something. But obviously they can't use normal post. So yeah. make sure you send owl such and such to go and, you know, deliver the yeah. present for him. And the owl's like, hey, I need, I need to deliver the present. Hey, <laughs> I, I need to deliver. And eventually they're like, fine, socks. Yeah. Go away. I mean, who knows why they give him these, like, ridiculous presents. But either way, this is his first yeah. birthday present that's thoughtful, that's caring, that's meant to, like, protect him and help him. And... I, I love that. I also think it's really sweet and very like indicative of Hagrid, who probably does not make very much money at all as gamekeeper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's bought Harry an ice cream. He buys him a hamburger before they leave. Mm -hmm. And he also bought him an owl, which couldn't have been cheap. You know, after taking Harry to pull all of this mm -hmm. gold out of his vault. Yeah. You know, it would have been so easy to be like, you've got, you know, hey, money bags. Why don't you buy us some ice cream? <laughs> now you've just found your giant inheritance. But he doesn't even, you know, mm -hmm. pretend, you know, there's there's no pretense that he would go in that direction. He's just, oh, I bought us ice creams, you know. Yeah. He's just so kind and and fatherly. I thought it's interesting because I always found that moment with the hamburger really sweet too yeah. because he says like that they always take Dudley to hamburger restaurants mm -hmm. and to do all of these things so he's never gotten to really experience that and yeah. then like we see that come back where Hagrid's buying him the hamburger. I, I, I didn't think of it in relation to him not having a lot of money so that's really sweet too but I always thought that was a really endearing scene picturing them sitting on a bench eating a hamburger before Harry has to go back. I mean he lives in a hut. I mean... In in the side of the woods, yes, he's gamekeeper, but yeah, I think you also get the impression Hagrid's Hagrid's poor. Yeah. <laughs> well, the chapter draws to a close with what I think is is an interesting um, piece of dialogue. Harry says uh, to Hagrid, "I don't know anything about magic at all." I'm famous and I can't even remember what I'm famous for. I don't know what happened when Vault, sorry, I mean the night my parents died. And Hagrid leans across the table and says, don't you worry, Harry, you'll learn fast enough. And there's an interesting ambiguity there. Like, what will Harry learn fast enough? Because Harry said, I don't know anything about magic. And I don't know what happened the night my parents died. And we're, we're, we're there asking, well, what's he, what's he going to learn fast enough? And the most natural thing we're thinking is he's going to Hogwarts. He'll learn no, something about it. magic fast enough. But the answer, of course, is both. Harry will learn uh, about magic fast enough, but he will also learn during the course of, of this story uh, over the, the next many books plenty about the night his parents died. Some that will even contradict some of the details that Hagrid thought he knew and shared with us earlier on. Well said. Well, judging by the looks of, of the faces here at the Harry Potter Book Club, I think this uh, brings this edition of the HBBC to a close. Uh, we thank you for listening, and we want to remind you again uh, that you can contact us with your comments and questions at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. You can also check out the blog, leave a comment there, uh, or fill out the contact form on the website. 
Uh, we hope you enjoyed this. We hope you'll tell your friends, you'll rate us on iTunes, and that you will check us out next time when we gather for the Harry Potter Book Club. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.